This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome to our award-winning show, everyone, and thanks for listening. Someone has said that ignorance is bliss, and immediately the image of someone sticking their head in the sand comes to my mind. Certainly, there have been times that I wished I could unknow something that I learned, or I could forsake or ignore a duty or responsibility that I had been entrusted to accomplish. Then there are times that I've encountered people who, if ignorance is bliss, then they must have been blistered. They refuse to be moved by logic, common sense, or simply what is best. They chose to ignore and continue on with the devastating effect of not achieving more and resistant to change. If defining reality is the first responsibility of leadership, then accepting it must be the second. And I'm afraid if what we are hearing is true about the administrative changes to the federal poverty measure, then the third option of fabricating reality is a truly dangerous precedent for any leader to take. Here today on Food First Michigan is Stacey Dean, the Vice President of Food Assistance Policy at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities located in Washington, D.C. Ms. Dean is a graduate of our own University of Michigan, and she is here to help us define reality on this matter of redefining what it means to be poor in America. Jerry Brisson and I are back in just a few moments with our guest, Stacey Dean. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Bill Knight here in the studio, and as promised, Stacy Dean, the Vice President of Food Assistance Policy at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, is our guest. Stacy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of both of you and your organizations. Well, thank you very much. So we have a, a, a we should clarify the Michigan connection for you, right? Uh, you are a U of M grad, so do we say go blue here? We do, although I'm a little afraid it may split your listeners, uh, <laughs> those who support versus those who don't, but I'll take it. Um, all right. That's all right. That's all right. We're, we, we, um, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of neutral ourselves here on the show, but when we get somebody who uh, is, is leaning one way or the other, we have to recognize it. And passion is always good for radio, one way or the other. Passion is passion pays, right? We're yeah. good with that. It's all great. All right. Well, I will own it. Go blue. There you go. All right. So, Stacy, um, you have been with the uh, policy, uh, uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and um, tell us about your work there before we jump into our topic. Tell us a little about yourself, how you ended up in D.C., and uh, and then we'll dive into the meat of this conversation. Well, sure. I was I uh, was a graduate of um, U of M's uh, Institute of Public Policy, which is now the Ford School for Public Policy, and I came to D.C. Uh, as a budget analyst in the White House, the Office of Management and Budget in the early 90s. And from there, I uh, moved on to work at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a nonprofit here in D.C. And we do research and advocacy on big budget and tax issues, and uh, that includes, um, well, obviously, the 
the budget and tax, and on also the larger entitlement programs. And our general view is there's too much income inequality and other kinds of key disparities, and we want to make sure that federal policies are designed to lift folks up. Um, and so I focus on food assistance here and get to work with great groups like uh, yours in, um, around the country to make sure that states and localities are doing everything they can to make sure that our neighbors have enough to eat every day. Well, and we are grateful. I mean, one of the things that we, in as we try to do our blueprint for the state of Michigan, for how are we going to have a food secure state, data is one of the most important aspects of that. We really want to understand from a data perspective what's happening so that as we make changes, we can see what actually happens when those changes are made. And so the work that you're doing, the analytical work to really understand uh, these, these really important important programs, how they are intersecting with income inequality as well as other things, and to give us uh, a, a strong data perspective on that. It's just, it's invaluable to us as we move forward. So we're really grateful for that. And, uh, and you know, maybe before we get into a specific topic, you know, do you have general thoughts about how that's moving and the direction things are going that you'd like to start with? Well, I think many of us see the economy uh, much better today than it was, say, uh, 10 years ago. Absolutely, right? Unemployment Mm -hmm. is lower. uh, There's economic growth. But the problem is that that growth hasn't been shared by everyone. So... um, some some people's wages and incomes are doing much better today, and others have been stagnant uh, or, or, you know, growing only very little over the last not just 10 years, but even 20 or 30 years. So we see a widening um, between those who are doing well in our country and those who are just held, just left behind. Um, basic wages, the minimum wage, um, uh, you know, lo- uh, working class jobs just aren't paying enough to cover housing, health, um, education, and so it makes it makes meeting our daily needs uh, harder, and it certainly makes pursuing opportunity that much harder. So we, um, I think that's really the issue that we need to address. That having been said, our safety net and and the kinds of uh, supports and services that the federal and state governments uh, provide can make a huge difference, and they have become increasingly important. So um, programs like SNAP, which used to be called uh, food stamps or health coverage through uh, Medicaid, really make a huge difference in addressing some of these uh, these key gaps that so many families are struggling with. And we see it here really clearly. 47% of the people that come for food assistance from our food bank networks are employed. And when I got into this work 30 years ago, I know if you saw me, you'd say, how could it be? You look so young. Um, <laughs> Thank God we're on radio. <laughs> yeah. you would, we didn't even think about that issue. If you were employed, you were food secure. And so, yeah. you know, that's a big, big change, even in terms of the people that are, are coming for services and the kinds of places they want to come. And, and, you know, what used to work as an, a basically appointment-only system has to be completely rethought because if people are at work, they can't necessarily make appointments in the middle of the day. And if they can't come on the weekend or in the evening or before work, they're not getting the services they need. And yet they definitely need some food help. And so we certainly see what you've said aligns very well with what we see. 
Yeah, I think that that says it really well. That uh, um, I think our perception uh, that, or some people's perception, that poverty is about the absence of work is just really uh, completely out of alignment with reality. The, in fact, uh, virtually everyone is working. It's just that the pay that they get or the hours that they're able to get, because low wage work is sporadic, unreliable, and doesn't offer benefits. And so, to get by, um, it just often means that families have to combine. Uh, the work that they can get with some other help, like organizations from the, from what you're offering, as well as the charitable sector, as well as from the government. She's Stacy Dean. She's the vice president for food assistant policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in Washington D.C. She's our guest today, and Stacy, I think um, you know we have published what we call the, uh, what is called the self-sufficiency standard. Um, and it's um, been a tremendous help to us in defining the problem. And it has given us a way to talk to, you know, both political parties to say, we want everyone to be self-sufficient. And we can all agree about that. Now we have defined what self-sufficiency looks like and on a basic budget. And so that has helped us change the conversation here in Michigan so that we can look at it beyond, as you said, poverty is not just the absence of work because we have 4.5% unemployment here. And it's just true that everyone who can work is working and, and they just can't, they got more month than they do money and they just can't make this all full together with what they're doing. And I think that one of the things I would really like for us to discover in some analytical uh, data-driven process is the pain that they feel, the emotional pain of getting up and going to work and doing things right, knowing that it will never be enough. Wow, that I I couldn't agree more. I mean, the stress uh, that a family or even a child experiences growing up when their parent uh, every day is worried about whether there'll be food on the table, whether that doctor's bill can be paid, whether the lights will be turned off. Um, it it is. If there were a way to quantify that, it uh, it would. I hope it would help illuminate for. Um, our other neighbors, uh, the problem that we need to solve. Right. Hey, let's take a quick break here on this segment and come back. We want to talk with you about the, the discussion that's happening around the, the change consumer price index or the consumer price index and what effect that has, particularly on poverty, but also um, specifically about food assistance. And so we're going to come back with Stacey Dean. She's our guest today, Jerry Passan, Dr. Phil Knight here. We'll be back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back here on Food First Michigan and Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, Stacey Dean, the Vice President for Food Assistance Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities located in Washington, D.C. And um, Stacey, we're really interested in your perspective about the discussion around what looks like a couple of administrations have talked about and um, are trying to implement in regard to the chained consumer 
price index, price index, and then the consumer price index, and what that means and what's the impact on the people that we serve. So help us clarify this, if you would. Sure, I'd be happy to. So the Trump administration is considering a change to the nation's poverty measure, meaning the uh, the the annual income amount that we de- determine is um, people with income below that are living in poverty and people above it uh, are out of poverty. They're considering a change to the way we measure that that would ultimately cut vital health care and food assistance for millions of low-income Americans who need it. Um, so you'd say to yourself, well, hey, how is it that a cut in the measure can affect the programs? Well, eligibility for um, health coverage, food assistance, uh, uh, Medicare, some certain uh, Uh, drug subsidies under Medicare are tied to that poverty line. And uh, what the administration is uh, floating quite informally uh, and a little bit below the radar, unfortunately, is taking the way that that number changes year to year to reflect inflation uh, and saying, well, we just want to consider a technical change and use a different inflator so that's such that it would grow more slowly. Uh, And that would mean that would have the ripple effect of cutting key support to people in poverty. So not only redefining that there are fewer people in poverty, but providing less help to them. Let's try to get at what that really, I mean, how much data do we have around that yet? And maybe it's too early to really get specific about, do we, have we broken this down by program and people yet? Or are we, is it really just too soon to do that? Well, we can project what the impact would be um, if, you, uh, say, a few years from now, if we allowed the poverty line to grow more slowly under the uh, proposed alternative measure and see how it would impact. So, for example, in the range of food assistance, the area that we, the three of us focus on, nearly 200,000 people, mostly in working households, would lose, would be cut off of the SNAP or food stamp program altogether. Uh, if you look out uh, 10 years from now, 100,000 school-age kids would lose their eligibility for free or reduced-price meals. Uh, and it would also uh, potentially cut off uh, up to 50,000 kids from the WIC program. So this has real consequences. Um, and again, it's it's the families that we were just talking about, those who are working um, but struggling to get by because uh, they, if they are just above that poverty threshold mm-hmm. and, and it gets redefined down, then they would lose eligibility. And I want to come back a little bit to the self-sufficiency standard conversation because one of the reasons that we put that together to look at literally, um, what is it, Phil, 72 household types or... 719. There we are. See how far off I am? Yeah, 719 household types across all 83 counties of Michigan. There we go. So, and the reason we, we wanted to do that so thoroughly is because there's a lot of policies that that tick back to the poverty measure, whether it's 180% of poverty or whether it's the actual poverty measure or whether it's people's assumptions based on the number of people in poverty, we already fundamentally feel that the poverty measure is fairly inadequate, that it was built in the 60s. It it was maybe a good way to, to think about, you know, for the first time, how do we implement government programs using some kind of understanding of how many people are in poverty? Not a bad idea. Probably a good idea. Well, that that is sorely in need of revision, and we've talked about that several times on the show. So the, the, the danger here in looking at the chained consumer price index is that it actually exacerbates a problem we already understand is not in the right place. 
that's absolutely right. Near poor families in America face high rates of uninsurance and food insecurity. They have problems paying their rent and utilities and other basic bills. So, um, the, you know, under the proposal, the struggles of poor and near poor families would only grow because we'd pr- be offering less help to them. And I agree that, um, a, you know, we ought to be looking at the poverty measure for whether it's fully capturing uh, those who experience those struggles. And if we did that, it would probably be a higher um, a higher line, not a lower line. I mean, you know, just going back to the data and the um, your point earlier about let's make this about the facts is the chain CPI. There are a lot of reasons that the, for certain kinds of inflators that the chain CPI is better. It is true that um, some some goods and services are not increasing in price and are improving in quality, and therefore inflation. Uh, may not be growing quite as fast as the CPI suggests. But that typically tends to be for higher-income households, uh, not lower-income households who are um, paying quite a bit of money of their budget for housing and health, which are things that are growing faster than the rate of inflation. So, um, you know, the, I think they're also – it's not just about the impact, although that we I care deeply about that. It's also whether analytically this is a good proposal. And I, w- I think the evidence suggests that it isn't. It is designed to um, administratively cut backs on uh, programs and services when uh, the administration's proposals to do that weren't adopted by Congress. Instead, they're trying to do it, uh, I think, through a backdoor administrative measure. Yeah, and my recollection of that was that they were going to use the chain consumer price index to for both taxes and eligibility, and that when this was originally proposed, there was going to be at least some opportunity to use the additional revenue to make up for some of the shortcomings of the of the formula. And I don't know if that's being talked about at all. It's not being talked about at all. Uh, this is uh, a very one-sided uh, effort that is focused really that, – that, that's impact would be on those who are in poverty or just struggling around the poverty line um, and would not affect really the um, – not have a profound effect on uh, the, the way that we – think about taxes or Social Security. So you're right that a more comprehensive look at this is a, is a reasonable thing to do, and I think it's something policymakers ought to be considering and discussing, but you'd need a holistic look at it across government, not just um, the programs that support those who are in poverty. Stacy, um, this is going to be like a, a totally a geographical logistics question. So if I came to Washington, D.C., and I said, I want to go to where the federal poverty measure is, what, where would I go? Is it, the, is it the Office of Budget and Management, or is it in the you know, Health and Human Services? Where does the federal poverty measure reside? Because that's the building I want to walk into and have a conversation with somebody. <laughs> um. That's so interesting. It, make it, it makes it sound like it has its own apartment or something. Where yeah, it right. So, <laughs> I wish it did. Uh, yeah. That's right. The, the agency that's proposing this change is the Office of Management and Budget. Um, they are, they are uh, the ones proposing that we reconsider the, the federal poverty line. Then there are federal agencies like the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of uh, USDA, the um, Department of Agriculture, that use that uh, poverty line number to 
affect the um, the eligibility for programs. So they're they're really on the receiving end of mm-hmm. whatever the Office of Management and Budget, which is right across the street from the White House, decides to do. So that's where we need to be focusing our energy is um, is letting the director of OMB know that this is an unacceptable change. So that's the building I want to storm right there. That's the one. <laughs> that's... I don't recommend it. It's yeah. guarded by the Secret Service. Yeah. I, I do yeah. think I think making your voice known is really important. Making your voice heard is really important. Thank you for protecting our good doctor. He, he does such a nice job. We we want to keep him. Well, I'm I so this is a and Jerry will tell you that this is a I it's 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 one of the things I want to affect change in before I ever stop doing this work, before I retire. I want this to change. And I had I had hopes that that even this administration would define reality, which is the first responsibility of leadership, and and I wanted them to see that. Well, we tell the we tell the story here on the show a couple of times about an episode in the old TV series, um, The West Wing, where this was a topic in the show, and they said the federal poverty measure is um, oh, is outdated, it's ineffective, it's wrong. And he said, well, you went, we need to update that. And he said, wait a minute, if we did that, we would essentially double the number of people in America that are in poverty. And no administration is going to have that kind of courage in order to do that. So with facing those gigantic odds, you know, I don't want, I, you know, I mean, small things don't motivate anybody, right? Big, big dreams. This is my dream that we would affect change at the federal poverty measure so that we would truly be able to define reality, the number of people who are in America that need help, and these policies would all then begin to work together to reward work, to reward people for their industry, and lift themselves and these, these work supports, lift them out of poverty once and for all. That's my dream. Well, I completely agree. I mean, I think that episode from the West Wing, I actually remember it. And and the point is, it wouldn't make them poor. They are poor. Right. Redefine them as poor. And I think it's our job is to recognize what's going on in our communities and to call it out. We don't want to define away the scope and scale of hardship and struggle in this country. And, And because the three of us know it is very real. Um, you know, no law or policy requires the administration to revisit that methodology for updating the poverty line. It's entirely a discretionary choice to consider the change. And I think it's up to us to um, to ask our elected officials to, to start getting real about what is what is happening in our community so that our government um, begins to respond in a uh, a more meaningful and substantive way. Well, this this direction we're going is the exact opposite direction that we need to go. So That's right. we 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 got to turn this boat around 180 degrees. And now it, it sounds like it's going to be hard to do, like kind of turning a ocean liner in a bathtub. But I still think we can get it done. So let, let's let's I, continue. I agree. Yeah, thank you, thank you. See, she agrees, Jerry. And you know, <laughs> put that on the calendar. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back with Stacey Dean. She is the Vice President for Food Assistance Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in Washington, D.C. She's our guest today with Jerry Brisson and me, Dr. Phil Knight, here on Food First Michigan.
First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight here with Jerry Brisson. Stacy Dean is our guest. She's the Vice President for Food Assistance Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And Jerry, you got a question. Well, I, I think the next thing we got to talk about is, aside from storming the Office of Management and Budget <laughs> across from the White House, what else could we do to impact this? Well, OMB, or the Office of Management and Budget, did um, ask the public to provide comments. They gave us, they had a 60-day comment period and said, what do you think about us changing this inflation uh, rule such that uh, the poverty line would be redef- ultimately be lower? And uh, thousands and thousands of people commented that they thought it was a very bad idea. And this was academics, economists, um, uh, groups like yourselves who would see the real impact and said, no, we think this is a bad idea. Just because the comment period is over doesn't mean that our work is done, however. Um, you know, OMB is, is going to listen to, I think, members of the public and particularly elected officials. So if your council member, your governor, your state legislator, or your, your members of Congress, um, if you call them and say, we want you to weigh in with the Office of Management and Budget and let them know that this is a bad idea, I, I think it will make a big difference. And sometimes folks ask me, well, if the comment period is over, you know, doesn't that mean that members of Congress can't weigh in and give their opinion? And I like to remind them that um, under the Constitution, it is the job of the legislative branch to give their opinion <laughs> to the executive branch about what they're doing well or not well. So comment periods don't apply. Um, so please um, call them and ask them to take action. Uh, I think it'll help, and um, it is. This is such an arbitrary and capricious suggestion. It needs um, much more review and consideration before we we move in any direction that would affect the poverty line. Well, so the, the whole purpose of what Jerry and I doing the show here is originally was to change the conversation about food insecurity in Michigan. Now that we've kind of rebranded the show to Food First Michigan, um, it's really about creating a movement. And what you just described is what a movement does. They act. We're not just talking. We're we're acting. And and calling our legislators, uh, both you know across the spectrum uh, here in Michigan, is the right thing to do for this because it, it's. I I'm going to have to stop because. <laughs> I'm probably going to say something that Mark will have to delete, but <laughs> I mean, it just borderline is immoral to redefine po- people in poverty and act as if they're not really there. And I just, it's unacceptable. Well, and the things that we're trying to do to, to highlight the, the safety net and what a working safety net should be um, is to... to keep revisiting what does the data actually tell us. So I already know in the five counties that I serve that I've got over 300,000 kids getting free and reduced price lunch in school. So I know that those families every month are struggling to figure out how to make sure they have enough food for those kids, and that's a real thing. So if if that number goes down to 250,000, but in fact those kids still aren't getting the food, that's not really helping us solve a problem. 
right? All it's really doing is disguising a problem. So we're actually coming at this from the opposite point of view, where we're saying, let as we work with families and households, particularly households with school-aged children, we know that we're not going to hit the education outcomes that those households and that their schools want if we don't have a very comprehensive and clear look at how many meals are these kids missing? How many days are they going to school hungry? When they go to school hungry, how does that affect their attendance? How does that affect their behavior in the school system? How does that affect the parents' relationship to school when the basic fundamental things that they need to make sure their their children are doing well aren't happening for them? So obviously, we're very concerned about any policy change that actually disguises the problem as opposed to solves the problem. And so, I, I, you know, I know that's a little bit of a long repeat of maybe some of the things we've already covered, but I think it's important when you tell me that 100,000 school-age kids are going to be affected and 50,000 kids on WIC, we're working hard to make sure people understand what are the numbers of kids that are getting help, how much of the problem is that solving, and what else do we need to do to make sure that those kids can thrive? I couldn't have said it better. I mean, look, I really am an analyst and a researcher, and I am open to any kind of new information or policy discussion where we can make things better. I don't think we should rule anything out. But a bottom line principle for me when I think about a change is does this make hunger, hardship, and inequality in this country worse or better? Mm. And if it's going to make it worse, it just needs to come off the table. We are a wealthy country. We are an incredible country. And, and uh, on measures that go far beyond um, uh, our income and wealth. And we have the ability to um, tackle big problems without making hunger and hardship worse in this country. And um, that will always be, for, for me and for this organization, a principle for whether a policy is a, a good or a bad idea. Well, I think you put the cookies on the right shelf right there. If it makes it easier <laughs> for people to lift themselves out of poverty, it's a good policy. If it makes it harder for them, it's a bad policy, and it should not be an option. I love that definition. So we've covered at some length here the the change to the chained consumer price index and the conversation going around there. What other things should we be talking about right now? What else is on your top list of things that you think we should know? Well, I think people working in the food security space, whether it's through a food bank or um, local food councils, uh, are just focused on addressing hunger, it, it's important for us to remember that what some of the key drivers of hunger are, because we focus so much on the food programs as the solution, and they are. They are powerful, powerful remedies to the inability, you know, the lack of resources to buy food. But the drivers are often um, unaffordable housing, uh, mm -hmm. having someone with a disability in your home and the costs that come from that, which are often about housing and transportation and health care, and, and, and also just low wages. And I do hope that um, a, a broader set of folks in the food space um, – at once we've won uh, some key successes on making sure that uh, programs like SNAP and School Lunch and WIC are available to everyone, widen our scope a little bit and have the conversation that you all are having about how do we help families meet that sufficiency standard. Because I don't think in the end we're going to get there unless we tackle income, housing and affordability, and the need for comprehensive health coverage. Um, those are some of the key things that are holding families back. Well, that's exactly right. And that's why we are doing the, we have done the self-sufficiency standard, and we're in the process of updating that for the state of Michigan. 
And again, you can find that uh, standard at our website. It's fbcmich.org slash self-sufficiency standard. And you can look at that. I'm, I'm sharing this with all of our listeners that you can look at the county you live in and create whatever household type that you want. And it will, this tableau will update and you'll be able to discover what it actually takes for someone to not need us or the government. And, and uh, I think it's a tremendous tool because it gives us an endpoint, and we can work back from there to where we're at today and begin to address, as you said, Stacey, some of these other factors that are drivers into people having to live with, under the toxic stress of food insecurity. So it has been great to have you, Jerry. Last word for Stacy. You know, again, um, it's so important that we all be mindful of real information. And there's so much rhetoric that gets out there and, and treated as fact. Um, we're really grateful that you're there, that you're, that you're putting the facts together, that you're doing these projections from a basis of reality, that you're understanding how many actual people are going to be affected and what that could mean for them so that those of us on the ground really have a much stronger basis for here's what we have to do now. And as we work on our blueprint to solve hunger in Michigan, we know that it's a moving target. And so having your support and help in, in, in helping us really focus in on what is the target and why is it that way, I just want to say thank you for your work, and it, and it means a great deal to us. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, and um, good luck in all of your work. It's so important. Jerry and I are back to wrap up this show in just a moment. So we're back. Jerry, that was uh, quite the conversation with Stacy Dean. And an important conversation. I mean, we want to get to this stuff as it's happening. Obviously, it's really important for you listening to know that, you know, every day, every week, every month, there's something going on that's affecting policies that affect you. And when we talk about having a food-secure Michigan, if we pretend like we have fewer people in poverty than we actually have, we're not going to solve this problem. So... Again, I understand these are complex issues. There's a lot of math involved. There's some things that are very good about the chained index versus the one we're using now. We've got to look at all of that and how it comes together. But as it's happening now, I think we can say it's it's going to make the problem worse, not better, just to pretend that there's uh, less people in poverty than there actually are. You know, I can't imagine any leadership scenario where ignoring a problem or defining the problem inaccurately leads to a great solution. Right. And we've, I mean, again, many times addressed this issue of how the poverty measure is already flawed. And it's challenging to change it because so many things are hooked to it. Well, by the same token, by changing the index, which the same many things are hooked to, and not really thoroughly looking at what is this going to do for the people that are really going to be impacted by it? I think that's a mistake. So we want people to let their legislators know that this isn't a good idea just to take this one piece of it and try to push it through. So if you want to know who to contact, house.gov and senate.gov will give you a way to find out who to contact to say this isn't a good idea. Because if we want people to work instead of getting assistance, we have to have policies that are going to help keep them at work. This isn't going to be one of them, at least the way it looks now. No, it's not. And it's, it's, it's again, I think going back to what Stacy said, if it's a, 
if it's a policy that helps lift people out and become self-sufficient, it's a good policy. If it's holding them back or trapping them in poverty, it's a bad policy and it shouldn't be an option. I guess it's time for a little food for thought. The United States women's soccer team recently won the World Cup, an amazing accomplishment by any standard. At halftime of the match between the U.S. and the Netherlands, it was 0-0, to zero, or nil to nil. The U.S. won 2-0. to zero. But what if late in the game, the leaders of the World Cup decided that the Netherlands could use their hands, but the U.S. team couldn't? And the result was the Netherlands won 5-0. to zero. We Americans would be enraged. That would violate so many of our core values that we would probably invade and conquer the Netherlands if someone could show us where they are on a map. I doubt most of us could find it. To me, that is exactly what is happening to the working poor families in America. The administrative change proposed by the current administration is not right. It's not good policy. It isn't just, it isn't best, and it isn't American. We give one another a hand up, and on occasion, if need be, we will even give each other a hand out. It is who we are. We come alongside one another, we help one another, we stand by and stick together with one another. We don't ignore, redefine, and act as though someone doesn't exist. The facts of the matter do not support this reclassification of who is poor in America, and it's wrong. So, in keeping with our new mantra for our show, we want to change the conversation, but we want you to act. We want to be a movement. Please write your congressperson, and better yet, call and share your displeasure with this proposed change in how we define the poor in America. Catch up on all our shows at foodfirstmichigan.org, foodfirstmi.org. Follow Jerry and me on all of our social media channels, And until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.